Hello, Janeites, and welcome to the very first episode of Austin Chat, a podcast coming to you from the Jane Austen Society of North America. I'm your host, Brecken Wood, from the Georgia region of Jasna. I've been an Austin fan for many years, but I still have so much left to learn, which is why I'm thrilled about all the amazing experts we have coming on the podcast in the next few months. My guest today is Lizzie Dunford, director of Jane Austen's house in Chawton, England. As Austen's home for the last eight years of her life, and also the place where she wrote and revised all of her beloved novels, the cottage truly is, as its website states, the most treasured Austen site in the world. Lizzie assumed her role at the museum in April 2020 and immediately faced the challenge of keeping the house running during a global pandemic. She did a fantastic job of organizing and running a whole host of digital offerings until the house was able to reopen to the public and has since moved on to other interesting projects, some of which we'll talk about later. With over a decade of experience in museum leadership and historic conservation, Lizzie is well-equipped to preserve Austin's legacy for future generations of Janeites. Welcome to the podcast, Lizzie. Thank you so much for having me, and it's an absolute honor to be the first guest. I'm real privileged. Yeah, we're very excited. Okay, so before we get into the museum, I just want to start with a segment called Desert Island. You're stranded on a desert island, and you can only have one Austin character as your pen pal. Who do you choose and why? I think, and I'm aware this is a strong statement to open with, but for me, it would have to be Lady Susan. I think the letters that she writes, I mean, there's always going to be something happening in her life. If you're going to have a pen pal, it's, you know, you want someone who's living a little bit. And I'm afraid Lady Susan is going to continue having a life and an interesting life in a way that a lot of Austin's heroines are just not, not going to have. So yeah, for me, it's Lady Susan. Lady Susan ends really abruptly too. So having her as a pen pal, you'd be like, what else is going on? Yeah. What's and gonna happen next? It's gotta be Lady Susan, yeah. To pick an epistolary novel, her only epistolary novel, right? We know that um several of her novels started that way and then she ended up changing them, but so her only existing epistolary novel, that's a good choice for a pen pal, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so Lizzie, for those who don't know much about Austin's biography, can you just set the scene for us a little bit? What was going on in Jane Austen's life in eighteen oh nine, age thirty three, she moves into the cottage, which is now Jane Austen's house museum. Yeah, it's it's a really important time for Austen in this period. Uh, she's had a lot of housing insecurity over the past you know, nearly a decade since 1801. So she'd grown up in Hampshire. She's a Hampshire girl, she's very much a, a woman of of the rural areas, really. She she does seem she does love London, she spends a lot of time in London, not that keen on Bath. It it, it seems to doesn't really suit her. Um, uh, she loves loves her childhood home in Hampshire. She leaves there in 1801 and then has this great period of, of insecurity. She goes from being in what effectively is a tiny hamlet on a farm with many, many acres of land surrounding her to being in flats and apartments and increasingly smaller and, and cheaper accommodation. There's a real disconnect from the world and the natural world for her there They in, in Steventon. They're pretty much self-sufficient for all the essentials. You know, they have their own dairy. Uh, they're they're growing their own vegetables. They're growing their own fruit. They're growing their own produce, and they go from that to being a very very urban urban lifestyle. And yeah, what's really tragic about the time in Bath is when they first move in eighteen oh one and they're looking for lodgings. Like they definitely don't want to go and live in the street that's named. By the end of the time, they're in this street because oh, yeah. it's it's all gone. 
it's all gone a bit sad. And then they moved to Southampton. So this is Mrs. Austin, Cassandra and Jane, where they're living with her brother, Frank, and his wife, Mary, who's probably the first child. She's, she's happier in Southampton because they've got a garden, they've got space and they have a settled home, a little more settled home. And throughout this period from sort of 1801 to, to late 1808, she's not really been writing, which when you contrast with the huge productivity of her teenage and her early 20 years, is is really quite striking. You know, it's the Watsons, is that's pretty much it, and a handful of letters that come out of that period. And so she knows in advance that she's moving to, to Jane Austen's house, she's moving to Chawton. Uh, it's part of a long-standing plan. Her mother wants to go and return to Hampshire. She wants to go around that area. All of the brothers are sort of almost in a cartwheel around this hub mm-hmm. of it being there. And before she moves, she, she writes a letter to a publisher that had bought the copyright of something called Susan. Uh, never been published, bought for £10. And she writes to get it back. She's looking to start writing. She's looking to start writing and she is looking ahead to having a settled home. And this is, she knows, the whole family knows that this this move, this is, as far as I can tell, the final move, this is home for life. This is accommodation rent-free in a house that's a similar size to what they knew in Steventon. It's back in Hampshire and it is, in many ways, it's a homecoming. It's a coming back and it's, I think in some ways, it's also a coming back to herself. It's coming back to the woman she was able to be in her 20s before she had to be on the social circle of Bath. Uh, So it's a hugely important time. And it just unleashes this incredible, almost unparalleled for any writer period of creativity. Mm -hmm. So it's an incredibly, incredibly important period in her life. It's yeah, July eighteen oh nine. Everything's about to happen. It's about to start. <laughs> and I like the little the biographical bits from her life that end up in the novels. When you know the father dying, and then the the mother and the sisters having to kind of move around is very mm-hmm. sense of sensibility. And when they're when they're moving um, to the cottage on the grounds at Chawton, Chawton House belongs to her brother Edward. Correct. Sort of. Sort of. Um, So the house isn't actually in the grounds of Chawton House. It's quite a long way away. Um, So, well, by a long way away, it's it's about half a mile down down the lane. And it was for many, for 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 over half of its life, it was a completely independent house, an independent building. It was built as started off as a farmhouse, so single story thatched farmhouse, in about fifteen hundred. So yeah, real Henry the Eighth. Henry VIII's time, uh, and it was at that point it was known as Petty John's, so P-E-T-T-Y-J-O-N-H-S, so Petty John's, Little John's, and it grew as a farmhouse, and it got bigger and bigger, and it got a second story, and it all got linked up, and it got all these beautiful outbuildings, and then in mid-18th century, it was a pub for a while, it's called the New Inn, uh, because the house is right on the corner of two main roads. Um, main road from London it branches off to Winchester and to Gosport and Southampton um, so it's a pub for a while so the whole, whole point is completely independent of the Chawton estate and then after the pub closes it's bought by the Knight family to be the steward's house for the estate um, and because they are effectively absentee landlords they they don't spend much time in, in Chawton at all. Edward doesn't spend much time at Chawton while while Jane's there. So that's how it comes into the estate. So it's and it's lived in by the steward, bailiff, all the way up until eighteen oh eight. And he mm-hmm. then passes away 
And after he passes away, that's when the Austin women, it's it's redecorated and the Austin women move in them. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it had a, a lot of different lives. Did it, it dates back parts of it to the 1500s, you said, around... Yeah, very, very much so. It's, it's really old. So um, originally the kitchen, the kitchen is, is, is old and we think the dining room is the heart of the original house and then it's been extended. And the kitchen's never connected to the rest of the house. It was originally a single-storey brick building while the rest of it was timber frame and the, the brick and the, the covering and the, sl- and the tiles come later. Uh, so they, the kitchen was kept separate for risk of fire. So it was, so you've got, oh, and some of the timbers and the outbuildings are just astonishing. They're really old. You can see all the carpenters' marks. It's sort of Tudor and earlier Ikea, they'd mark all the timbers for how they'd be, how they'd be put oh, together. Oh, really? Uh, so That's yeah, funny. you can still see them on the outside of the building. So they're really gorgeous. So they're kind of like three and three goes together. So they'd be made flat pack, flat and then erected. So you can, you can see that in the buildings. Yeah, it's got real depth of history. So it was already old when Austin moved in. Right. And what kind of restoration work has been done on it since it became the museum? Oh, so much, so much restoration and, and series of restoration. We've been, it's been open as a museum for nearly 75 years. So we've got several cycles of, of restoration work. It wasn't in particular condition when it was purchased. It needed a new roof then. Uh, so it had a new roof then. It would have been redecorated, all sorts of things. The carpenters, uh, Tilly Carpenter, who first purchased the museum, and then his grandson, Tom Carpenter, who lived after it, did an awful lot of work cyclically. Uh, you know, windows always need redecorating and, re- and repainting. In the last decade or so, we've we've done a lot of work. So we've put in reproduction wallpapers. We're very lucky that there are three historic wallpapers that survive from the 1809 redecoration. And we know that because they have a, a tax stamp on the back of them that date them to that period. So those yeah, are reproduced fabulous. and hung. Yeah, they're gorgeous. They're really beautiful. And they're not what you'd expect. They're really vibrant really naturalistic or leaves and flowers that they're really beautiful it means that everyone who comes is seeing what austin would have seen every day absolutely i mean there's no this is art jane austen's house is the only fully authentic austin experience you can have anywhere in the world you know you are walking through the rooms as she would have known them they are decorated in the way that she would have known them as she's writing pride and prejudice and sense sensibility and mantle but you're seeing what she would have seen on the walls and and you know and that's that's incredible you can't you can't experience anything like that anywhere else so yeah there's all sorts of work constantly we've just had all the windows in the courtyard repainted and we fixed the roof uh last year and the year before last so yeah lots of work constant constant maintenance in a building 500 years old there is that's faces southwest there is always (laughs) something that needs doing I know you mentioned before that Austin was really a country girl. She loved the outdoors. Mm. She loved to have gardens. So tell us about the gardens on the property and maybe a bit more about Cassandra's Orchard. So they would have had five acres of gardens when they were. Sadly, we don't don't have as much now. It hasn't survived through to the present day, although it does mean it's lot easier to take care of <laughs> with our with our we've just got we've got about half an acre now they would have had meadows they would have had pastures they definitely had a vegetable patch they were growing their own fruit certainly growing their own vegetables they had a shrubbery and austin writes about in fact about this time of year she she writes about the peonies coming out and mignonette and all sorts of different plants so they were very very connected to it uh, Austin seems to have appreciated rather than necessarily done in the letters she describes she describes things as Cassandra's plants and Cassandra's flowers and different things like that and um, they were selling the fruit uh, surplus fruit from the orchard to the fruitiers in, in autumn and Cassandra's orchard is a uh, commemorative project that we started this year 
is this year is Cassandra's Austin's Cassandra Austin's 250th birthday. And we really want to do something to commemorate that. So we have put into the courtyard, which is the back of the house, which was previously a really empty space, six uh, apple trees of heritage varieties that really help to commemorate her life. And they're, they're doing very, very well. They had some beauty. They have blossomed, which I was really pleased with because they're very baby apple trees. Um, but they're doing very well. And yeah, they've got their leaves on now. And we do have a few few baby apples, which I'm very excited by. I do spend a lot of time talking to the apple trees and everyone else laughs at me. Oh, I think that's sweet. Um, okay, so I was I was wanted to talk about Chawton, the village. Um, obviously, it must have changed quite a bit from Jane's time with modern conveniences and things like that. But what was it like when Jane lived there? And are there any things that survived to this day from the village from her time? Huge amounts survived from the day. You know, it's it's very well preserved. There's a lot of the cottages are very similar. A lot of the houses are still there. There there are significant changes. So, so the big one of the larger houses, Prouting, which Austin knew well, that's a new build compared to Austin's time. But there is a lot that she she'd find very familiar. The biggest change is the change of the road. So in Austin's time, the road that her house is on the edge of, which is called the Winchester Road, was the main road from London to Winchester and Southampton and the corner that the house sits on or it faces onto the corner and now the road bends around was the where the road divided between Gosport so taking you down Southampton and down to Winchester so it's in this really really important position and would have been so for you know for centuries Winchester was the former capital of the country although very much not so by Austin's time but it was still a really important city um it's got a cathedral winchester college was there we're really one of the big private schools in the country it was really really important and it's the uh county town of hampshire so really big central hub and gosport is a really significant naval base and was at the time you know the entire time virtually that austin is living there you've got the backdrop of the napoleonic wars going on there's all sorts of things going on so there would have been troop movements and stagecoaches rolling past she writes in the letters about the stagecoaches shaking the house. So you've got to imagine you've got like a coach, massive stagecoach with six horses going and laden with people. And she's writing in the window that overlooks all of this. So uh-huh. whilst today it is literally bypassed, it would have been it would have been very different. So it is a combination of rural but still being very much in the centre of things. There would have been news of global significance and people moving from all over the world going mm-hmm. past the windows at- well I was, I was gonna ask if you how you feel the village of Chawton influenced her writing but I think having the news go by her window is probably one yeah definitely major example. but it's it's sort of Emma Emma in particular is a novel of a village it is capturing the dynamics of a village and how people interact and whilst it's about many things it is also how to be a good villager how to act and how to be compassionate and caring towards your neighbors and how to live in that in that social circle well and also how not to be (laughs) not to be with mrs elton and i think when yeah when you see where she's looking and where she's right now and what she's looking out on it's impossible to see that she isn't influenced by that context in in which she's living the geography is very different you know it's 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 really difficult to pin down those geographical locations that she's actually influenced by but certainly the social circle uh is is very very reminiscent 
And yeah, and like you mentioned, just the stability was enough, was what she really needed to to re-spark her creativity and her desire to write. I think that's really interesting. I'm not sure I was aware. I've just recently gotten into her juvenilia, and she was so prolific as a child writer and a teenage writer. And just, you know, her pen is constantly going, and we know that she was a prolific letter writer. But it does seem like, you know, moving from her beloved home and having to just be carted around from place to place was not conducive to her writing. And so how grateful we should all be that she had this house in Chawton near the end of her life. Yeah, I think think there's a very strong argument that without a stable home, those novels would have never come to light. You know, they could have stayed in drafts since that's Beta Pride and Prejudice forever. Uh, They might not, they might, they might have done, but they hadn't come out in the previous eight years. So it's, 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 it's a place of enormous significance to the history of English literature and the development of the novel. It is, I know I say this a lot, but it is almost of unparalleled importance. There are very few houses and very few no, few homes that have seen six novels written in just over eight years or under eight years in that the remain on the bestseller list 200 years later and are translated into almost every language in the world. Right. Yeah, I mean, there are very few places that can claim that. It is almost unique mm-hmm. in its its significant for what it enabled to happen. Well, let's talk about what else you have at the museum. You've got an incredible collection of objects and letters that belonged to Jane. Um, what are some of the most popular, the ones that people ooh and awe over the most? Oh, it's really difficult because everyone comes to the house for different reasons. Everyone comes to see different things. Everyone has their own favorite novel and everyone has... In many ways, everyone has their own Jane Austen. It's it's really interesting. There are different things. There are, there are people for whom the crosses are most significant because that speaks to them. Uh, they see Austen as a very faith-based writer. There are those who don't engage with that at all and see the uh, proto-feminist, very strong <laughs> female writer. Mm-hmm. So that everyone comes with different things. They come with different things. We have um, an extraordinary collection of letters so there are only 161 letters of which the content is known that it's exists by Austin, and even fewer of those at the whereabouts. We don't know. We don't know where all of those are, and we're really lucky that we own or jointly own 16 of those. So we own 10% of the known letters, and uh, it's just extraordinary. So I think the two two letters are two of my favourite things because they connect us very closely with Austin's lived experience and her actual one of her voices. Who you know the letters are all written to be shared aloud. They are public pieces. Uh, so it's really interesting that we don't have, we never or very rarely see Austin talking to herself. So in every single one of the novels, the, narr- the narrator's voice is different. Uh, each novel has a different narrator's voice and then in the letters they are often to Cassandra or they're to somebody else we never see Austin talking to herself because there's no diaries which is really sad uh she probably didn't keep a diary knowing seeing what she says in Northanger Abbey but it (laughs) it would I suspect that considering the differences between the voice with Cassandra and how she talks to Martha and how she talks to other people I think it'd be really interesting to see how she talked to herself but they are that is long gone and they are not under the floorboards um so that's a shame but my two I think some of the two most significant objects we have and one of them is on display at the moment is a letter that she wrote from the house of the 29th of January 1813 where she talks about receiving her darling child from London and oh, that yeah. is her copy of Pride and Prejudice and she talks and to be able to I am very lucky I get to hold it every so often but it's oh. on display and to see that and to 
you know, see it in the place where it was written. And when she's talking about reading it aloud to Miss Ben and you can walk outside and you can see Miss Ben's cottage and you can stand in the drawing room where they would have read it aloud with that wallpaper. I, I mean, I think together that is absolutely incredible. And it's still it still gives me goosebumps to know to put those things together. So that's one of my favourite objects. And I think that's it because letters are kind of brown, thick, brown squiggles on paper. They don't necessarily look that impressive, but what they are is absolutely extraordinary. And um, we also own a letter that she writes to James Stanier Clark, who was the Prince Regent's librarian. Oh, that's a funny one. It's brilliant. <laughs> I mean, she just tells him off the yeah. mansplaining. It's great. She's like, no. I will write what I want to write. I don't write. want to write a novel about I that. I don't want to write. Yeah. I want to write your life. And what's amazing when you see the real letter is she writes this no, and there's dash, big N, full stop, dash. And it's like, no, I will go my own way and I will do my own thing. And I think that's extraordinary. And one of those things that's so sad about Austen that we're kind of still fighting against is too strong a word is that in the start of that letter she's sort of is quite self-deprecating she's oh I'm not clever enough I'm so poorly educated she's she's just saying that it's not she doesn't mean it she's Mm -hmm. and sadly you know those first male late Victorian or mid-Victorian biographers like oh yes she's so modest you know she's she knows she's not well educated she's being sarcastic no, she's be- yeah she's being sarcastic and sadly kind of a lot of that that patriarchal tone still comes down even to biographies today you see her and I think no look at the no and this is where the letter itself is so significant because you can see the power and the passion that is put into that no and I think it's such a landmark object because it shows Austen's confidence in herself it shows her confidence in the writing and you know she's she's not Lizzie Bennet and but there is a parallel Lizzie Bennet has the confidence in herself to walk through mud and turn up at these strangers house kind of caked in mud and she's confident in herself that that doesn't worry her and I think there's something of that in Austen in her writing you know Austen is confident enough in her writing and she's confident enough in what she's doing that she can turn around to this man who probably is more powerful than her. I don't think he's quite as powerful, as important as he thinks he is. <laughs> um, but he does have a position. And she turns around, she goes, no, I'm doing my own thing. I know what I'm doing is right. right. And now we've only ever heard of James Daniel Clark because Austin writes a letter to him. Exactly. And yeah. she's the one who's on, who's on everybody's name. So I think those, to me, are my two favourite objects. But for, for visitors... Um, and obviously for me, you know, the patchwork quilt's just an extraordinary, extraordinary work of art. It's just incredible. So it was made by Austin and her mother and her sister. And it's just these astonishing diamonds of fabric that were collected from all across their social circle and their world. And it's incredibly plotted and it's beautiful. And some of the stitches are so tiny. And, you know, some of the triangles must be like an inch and a half across and it's just astonishing and of course you know the writing table that's yeah it's so small it's so small you know I've got my table I've got my laptop balanced on a table that probably isn't much bigger than it about the same size and I always think of it as kind of the center point of a vortex so you've got this big whirlwind and helix of all these novels and all these words and all these adaptions and all these characters and all of these people that are gauging all over the world over two centuries and they all it all filters and spirals and centrals down right onto this point on this table in this dining room where this came from and I think that's just 
it's just extraordinary to know what has come from that space, to know the words that came out from that table, they really have changed and shaped people's lives. And it's extraordinary to know what came from it is almost overwhelming. So yeah, that makes a lot of people cry. <laughs> it makes a lot of people cry. So yeah. Um, yeah. And it, like you mentioned, it's very small. I don't, I mean, when I'm studying for something or writing something, I have to take up like a six foot dining table and spread everything out. So I don't know how she was able to just contain all of her work and all of her ideas in that in that small little space it's it's really incredible extraordinary so what kind of care goes into preserving these old objects especially the delicate ones like austin's letters do do things have to be cleaned regularly or kept at a special temperature or yeah so um every historic house that you go around there are really important ways of preserving them so we tend to try and keep out light and keep out damp those are the big enemies for everything really light degrades uh, particularly textiles particularly ink um and works of art on paper so too much light will degrade them silk is awful silk will shatter um if it has too much light and particularly blues and some greens they will fade very rapidly when they are exposed to too much light so major thing is keeping out the light so we have uv filters on all the window because uv light is the most damaging so every single window has uv filters on it and when we have some particularly precious objects we actually keep the shutters closed so at the moment we've got tom lefroy's miniature out and miniatures are really because they're miniatures and ivory they're quite sensitive so we keep the shutters closed in front of that to keep the light to the minimum. And similarly, the quilt, the shutters in front of that quilt, that's kept closed. We also use something called dosimeters. That's D-O-S-I-M-E-T-E-R-S. And they are bits of blue wool. And we use those to measure how much light is falling on them because we know how much they'll fade. So you have half of it exposed to the light and half of it covered up. And when you open it up, you can see how much. Uh, so that will help us make decisions. And if it's still getting too much light, we stop that. We also, you know, the key thing is keeping things relatively dry. Um, so in a historic house environment, the ideal humidity for keeping both objects and humans happy is about 60%. So that is across a mixed collection like we have paper and other materials like to be drier um so so a bit drier so we tend to keep the letters we keep off site because we're an old house and we can't always keep them at that temperature so they're either off site or in special cases on site so again they are dark and dry um we also dust a lot mm. uh visitors make dust we love visitors but they do create dust because every time you move, you shed fibers and all sorts of Skin other cells. nasty things. <laughs> Skin cells. And yeah, it, there's a there's been some studies that within kind of a meter and a half of where visitors walk and every time you stop, you're going to, it, it, it makes it shed more. And we don't have any ropes in our house. Nothing is roped off so you can wander around. So that means there's quite a lot of dusting and we do that very carefully with we take a, you know, a sort of really soft tea towel duster and we fold all the edges in so there's no bits that can catch on anything fragile and we use that to dust and we also use brushes so we clean on a weekly monthly and annual cycle and every wow. year we wax all the floorboards lovely which is <laughs> so fun we love waxing the floorboards so um yeah, yeah we give really nourish 
really nourish them. It's like rubbing rubbing good moisturizer into your floorboards. So <laughs> that's a highlight of the year is polishing the floorboards. So now I want to talk about um you mentioned that holding those letters, you know, gives you goosebumps sometimes. Oh, I imagine yeah. that for for some people being in Austin's home is quite emotional. Do you do you see tears? Has anyone swooned? Oh yeah, <laughs> all the time. No one swooned. No true Austin <laughs> fan wouldn't swoon, uh, run mad but never faint. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> um, yeah, we do. It was really interesting. We actually, yeah, we were open today, and I was on site today, and it was really lovely. We were just talking talking to a lady who'd been round, and it kind of it, it got to a lump in her throat. She was talking about how she reread the left reread a novel every Christmas, and how important it was to her, and yeah, there are people who come in and are quite noisy about how much it matters, which is lovely in its own right. You know, it's beautiful <laughs> um, seeing somebody who's who's kind of, oh, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, which yeah. is really <laughs> exciting for us as well. But there's also something quite powerful about someone who's just talking to you about it and they're talking to you about how much Austin and her novels mean to them. And then you can see, gosh, you can see how much it means to them becomes it, because it becomes it just kind of wells up and you can see where they have to kind of, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm here. This is, in, this is incredible. And yeah, it's, it's absolutely extraordinary. Uh, she's been such, she's so important for people's well-being, uh and has been for say centuries. It is centuries now. So yeah, yeah. It, it is, it is important. It is, it is really astonishing. To see so yeah, we do on a, a lot on a daily basis. Yeah, you can see how much it means to people. Just just to prepare for this interview and for talking to you, I took the 360 de- degree tour that you can take of the house online and seeing her little writing table just I I felt oh, something. I was like, yeah. that's it. There it is. Yeah. Or seeing her, you know, the topaz crosses or seeing even her, you know, the her father's bookcase. I was like, oh, oh I love so the bookcase. It's beautiful. Yeah, there's so many yeah, treasures there. And so much that was connected to her her actual life. I, I hope to make it there in person one day, and I will probably oh, be one of yes, the ones weeping must. in the corner when I do. <laughs> good, good. No, you must. I think there's also the house feels lovely. It it really feels feels like a home. It really feels like a home. Uh, there's such warmth to it. Not necessarily actual, because in the winter it's freezing. Um, <laughs> but there is a warmth to it, and there is a joy to it, uh, which is really lovely. It it is an old house, but it doesn't feel like one of those creepy old houses. It's a, it, it's a it, living house. It's a living house, very, very much. Uh, I used to work for the play at the playwright George Bernard Shaw's house, mm. and when Shaw died, he knew his house was going to be open to the public, and he wanted the house to be what he called a living shrine. And I don't know that Shaw's we have we we I don't know that we quite got it there. But I, I really think actually at Jane Austen's house, that is how I would describe it. It is some ways a living shrine with every kind of, you can deconstruct those two two words as much as you want and you can put them back together and it's it kind of works every single way you deconstruct it. It is, the house is alive, Austen's memory is alive, it's alive with people and yet there is this aspect of pilgrimage and, and something else there and, and reliquary. But it is a very, but it remains vibrant and alive and beautiful and when people walk in through the drawing room into the front into the front room through the front door because of the color of the wallpaper some of this is beautiful yellow and the sun comes streaming in it's it's just this gilded without there being any gold it's this gilded beautiful homely space and I know that I just want to 
sit and write at hmm. Reverend Austin's desk or read a book in front of the fireplace and it feels like you could be there and I I hope that it always had that and I think that might be what it always felt like to Austin but I don't know I hope it did oh, yeah. I think that's what I think it shows it looks like it did from what it the impact that it had on her um but yeah it's it's beautiful but yeah the 362 is fabulous and we love it mm-hmm. yeah so let's talk about that let's talk about some of the museum's digital digital offerings since those became so vital in 2020 um i really oh, enjoyed the yeah. 360 degree tour did you spearhead that Thank was you. that already an option i did yeah no no it wasn't there before so we got some funding from an amazing uk-based organization called the art fund who supported us a lot um and it was just fantastic and from also from some money from the south downs national park which is our local area of Outstanding National Beauty and Park. And with that, we were able to do the virtual tour and we did a few different other little bits. But it was it's really important. With, we're absolutely thrilled with it. Uh, it's very, very beautiful. It's got lots of information. It's got all sorts of different things. And so that was launched in October 2020. And then in November 2020, we went into a lockdown again. And we then were able to use the guided tour, which I think we were one of the first people to do this. Um, and I still don't think a lot of people are doing it, but we were the first people to do it, where we started doing guided tours over Zoom. So and we still do them oh, most months. We don't do it over the summer because it's a bit, no one wants to be indoors looking at a birch tour, even a very beautiful Jane Austen's house in the summer. My staff and I, we take you on a guided tour of the house. So you can either look at it independently, which is completely free and it's accessible, all the time on our website or once a month we will do these guided tours and sometimes we do them special themed ones so we'll do mother's day or sensibility tour or pride and prejudice so we'll theme them and then we'll like highlight special objects within there and different things like that so that's been brilliant we've we've really enjoyed doing those and they were a real uh it was really fantastic particularly through we were closed on lockdown in the uk from january 21 all the way through to may 21 um so we didn't we weren't able to reopen till nearly the end of may in 2021 and so doing those guided virtual tours and those virtual events was the only way the house was still open doing those virtual events where we were able to bring together and bring together that community from people across the world was extraordinary and we had so much gorgeous feedback from people who were otherwise really isolated or having you know just a rough time and just to be able to come and spend an hour hour and a half with us and just talk about Jane Austen with other people that love Jane Austen and it was really really moving actually um and a great sense of responsibility to look after and share this place I think when when I first started not well obviously I started right in the pandemic and we had a survival appeal Mm-hmm. And people, including many Jasna members, were incredibly generous and enabled us to survive and to go on to to thrive, which is where we are now, which I'm incredibly proud of and incredibly grateful for so many support. And we had different levels of donations, including incredible people who were incredibly financially generous, which I'm hugely grateful for. But the message that really sticks with me was, and I might, I might cry when I say this because it still moves <laughs> me, moved me three years on was somebody who said that they gave us five pounds because that was all they could afford because they'd become unemployed and they'd lost their job and they weren't working. But they said that Jane Austen was getting there through the pandemic. And so they were going to help us get through as well. Oh, it's like the widow's might. <laughs> like, that's so beautiful. Yeah, it's just that extraordinary thing of how much it matters. And it really, really stuck with me. Mm-hmm. 
and why the house and why Austin and why the virtual events that we were doing was so important because it brought people together in ways they couldn't be physical and it still does it still does you know there are people who can't come to visit us because there's an ocean in the way or there are people that can't come to visit us people that can't come to visit us that live five miles down the road that can't come for other reasons um that want to and that want to engage and that want to meet other people who share the same interests so it's we're never going to stop doing digital offerings it's 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 not going to stop certainly not on my watch that's wonderful um because it's it's so so important i think it's beyond i mean it, it, beyond fundraising which it does every every little penny sure. <laughs> everything that we charge events for we charge for a reason because it helps to keep us going and it helps us to be able to reinvest and fix roofs and all sorts of different things which need fixing and also put on new events so yeah it's it's not stopping yeah well I mean we're all so grateful for it over here across the pond (laughs) because like I said yeah so many of our listeners in North America might never have the chance to go over there but we can experience so much of it online are there any digital Mm. offerings coming up that you're excited about that our listeners should know about oh yeah we've got all sorts of different things coming up on the 27th of june we've got an online teacher open evening so we've done a lot of work on our digital resources online and we can also do virtual school trips and we've done quite a few of those for people all around the world and so we're having a teacher open evening uh that's online uh you can book so that teachers from whether they're in Nebraska or Alton or London or LA can come and be a part of that. Um, So yeah, then in July, we're doing Emma. So there's a different virtual book club every month, guided tours most months. So in, um, we've also got a online guided reading session. So there's all sorts, just have a look on our website. And there is, at the moment, we've only got events up until July on the website, but There'll be more to come. You know, there'll be we'll be doing Jane Austen's birthday party in December as always. Yeah. Uh, there'll be all sorts of events through the winter. We'll be doing in January. We'll be doing all sorts to celebrate the publication of Pride and Prejudice. And 2024 is the 210th anniversary of the publication of Mansfield Park, as well as the 75th anniversary of the opening of the museum. So there'll be Ooh. all sorts, oh my all sorts going. That on is then. exciting. That's a lot to look forward to. Lizzie, thanks so much for talking with me today. So where should our listeners go to to look up all these events and to learn more about Jane Austen and the museum? So go to www.janeaustens.house. That's our website. So we're just janeaustens.house. And you can find all sorts of information there. We also have a really fantastic Instagram channel, uh, which is Jane Austen's House. Uh, we do some really gorgeous reels and behind the scenes and we work with incredible young actors who take the characters on and all sorts of different things like that. And we are also on TikTok as well. So um and Facebook and Twitter and all those different things, but Insta uh-huh. over on Insta and and TikTok, we're doing some really exciting interpretive things as well. So we really see it as an extension. So there's all sorts of beautiful things going on there. So if you want to get a sneak peek of what the gardens look like at the moment or Ooh, yeah. about the objects, Instagram is the place to go. And janeaustens.house for events, online resources. We've got all sorts of stuff about the teenage writings. We've got a whole teenage writings hub there with interactive games and, and all sorts. And you can see all of our, well, not quite all, uh, you can see well over 100 highlights from our object collection there with information and all sorts of stuff there. So there's a, there is a lot there's on an, the website. a never, never-ending list of Jane Austen yeah. treasures. That's wonderful. <laughs> Thanks so much, Lizzie. This has been so You're fun. You're very welcome. Thank you.
Okay, my dears, it's time for a big ol' scoop of Jasna news. Picture this. Gorgeous mountains soaring to the sky, a breathtaking alpine resort, and a whole weekend dedicated to our beloved Pride and Prejudice. If your ears are perking up, then you need to know about Jasna's 2023 Annual General Meeting, or AGM as we call it. Registration opened June 21st, and there are still some spaces available as we release this episode. The conference will be held in Denver, Colorado, November 3rd through 5th at the Gaylord Rockies Resort. Come join us as we explore the theme, Pride and Prejudice, a Rocky Romance. The AGM is an incredible experience and a wonderful opportunity to meet new Jane-loving friends. In addition to fascinating plenary and breakout speakers, you can sign up for workshops in calligraphy, bonnet design, and other crafts, take English country dance classes, explore the Denver area on tours, attend musical programs, plays, a book signing session, and yes, even a ball. Regency finery is admired but not required to attend the ball and dance the night away. Last but not least, Adrian Lucas, a.k.a. Mr. Wickham from the 1995 Pride and Prejudice miniseries, is going to appear live at the conference in Denver. Mr. Wickham, guys, he probably won't be dressed in his regimentals, but we can dream, right? So, how do you find out more? Go to the AGM website for all the program information, as well as registration information and hotel reservation details. The link to the website is kind of long. It's jasna.org slash AGMs slash Denver 2023 slash home dot PHP. But don't worry about memorizing that URL. We will include the link in the show notes, or you can just Google Jasna AGM 2023, and it's very easy to find. First timers are especially welcome. Once you register, you'll receive helpful emails and a link to the Hoot board where you can find other attendees who want to share airport shuttles, find a roommate, and so on. AGM spots fill up pretty fast, so don't wait. As Elizabeth Bennett says, What delight! What felicity! What are men to rocks and mountains? Oh, what hours of transport we shall spend! Indeed, Lizzie. Indeed. Now it's time for In Her Own Words, a segment where listeners share a favorite Austin quote or two. Hello, this is Paul Savage from the Eastern Pennsylvania region, and I've been asked to share with you one of my favorite passages from Pride and Prejudice. This one is from Volume 1, Chapter 11, and you will know it well. Miss Bingley's attention was quite as much engaged in watching Mr. Darcy's progress through his book as in reading her own, and she was perpetually either making some inquiry or looking at his page. She could not win him, however, to any conversation. He merely answered her question and read on. At length, quite exhausted by the attempt to be amused with her own book, which she had only chosen because it was the second volume of his, she gave a great yawn and said, "'How pleasant it is to spend an evening in this way!' I declare, after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything than of a book. When I have a house of my own, I shall be miserable if I have not an excellent library. There, in one short, very amusing paragraph, Austin reveals the insincerity of Caroline Bingley, who, of course, feigns interest in reading only because we know, and she knows, that Darcy appreciates women who read. It's a wonderful paragraph in a novel full of wonderful paragraphs. 
Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening, Jainites. If you're interested in joining the Jane Austen Society of North America or learning more about its programs, publications, and events, you can find them online at jasna.org. That's J-A-S-N-A dot org. Join us again next time, and in the meantime, I remain yours affectionately, Breckenwood. Wood.